HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome back to Heritage Radio Network's live coverage of Slow Food Nations here in Denver. We are having a great second day doing live interviews. Um, We've got some really great stuff coming up for you. First, we want to thank our sponsors for making this coverage possible. We want to thank our friends at Hearst Ranch, the Julia Child Foundation, and Julie Schaefer for getting us here to Denver. We've been having a great time. Um, So I'm Hannah Forden, and I am about to have a conversation about hunger with my guests, uh, Peter Ruddick, who is the coordinator of the California Food Policy Council, and Megan Lovelace, who is the founder of Mountain Harvest Consulting. Um, So welcome, Peter and Megan. I'm really happy to have you here. Nice to be here. Thank you. Excellent. So um, the two of you were uh, a part of a session during the Slow Foods Leadership um, that was focusing on hunger. So I'm curious, we've been having some really good conversations here, and we went to the sessions, and I kind of want to hear what you went over during your session, um, what the conversation was like, and what the exchange with the participants was like, what were interesting points brought up. Well... You interviewed our third panelist we yesterday, did. John Eichert. <laughs> With pleasure. <laughs> oh, John is wonderful. He and I have been on panels together. And on this topic, we wanted to bring it to Slow Food Nations mm-hmm. because I don't think a lot of people understand what causes hunger. I got an email last night that was reiterating the trope that. We're going to have 9 billion people, and we have to figure out how to feed them, so we're going to have to grow more, and we're going to have to grow differently. Mm. And it isn't really true. The United Nations says that we grow enough food right now to feed 12 billion people. We waste 40% of it. It's not a problem of there not being enough food. Hunger is often a distribution problem. It doesn't get to the people who need it. And too much of it gets to some people because at the same time that we have hunger, we have diabetes and obesity. Right. And we also have extraordinary amounts of food waste. Which we waste the energy to produce it and then it creates greenhouse gases and other kinds of pollution. And it's a matter of reorganizing rather than growing more. Technology can play a part, but it is significantly an economic problem and a policy problem that we need to figure out ways to get the food to the people who need it. 
Excellent. And what sort of concrete solutions, um, I'd love to hear both of your perspectives on this for, obviously you both work on the policy level, we are here at a very grassroots festival, so I'm, I'm curious about the intersection, what you see as like important steps that need to be taken. Megan, do you want to start? (laughs) Sure. Um, Very specifically in regards to policy, it's very important at every level of policy, local, regional, state, and federal, that we're considering who and how the policy is affecting. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's important that as the policy is written before it becomes implemented, that we're really hearing the voices of the communities that are going to be affected by that policy, specifically to food policy. Access is key. Mm -hmm. And so as we work so hard on big, big pieces of legislation, like the Farm Bill, how are we going to effectively implement those policies so that there's equal access to all of the food resources at every level of the food chain, from producers to laborers to eaters, Mm -hmm. so that we're not just talking about it, but we're doing it. Excellent. So uh, another way to look at it, which is near and dear to Slow Food's heart, is that we want to relocalize food as much as we can. And what Megan was saying about policy, policy can stop favoring commodity foods and perhaps favor, in some way, local foods. That I always say we want to reconnect people with their food. People don't know where food comes from. Mm -hmm. And when they know where it comes from, they make some more conscious decisions. They make some healthier decisions. But they also circulate that money locally. It doesn't go to some shareholder in another state or another country. It goes locally. What we're trying to say is if you build this local resilient food shed, you're building for your own population. There is much more chance that the people who are hungry now are going to be included in that local food shed because... You're, you're changing the reasons. You, you still need to sell the food. Somebody still makes a profit. But you're not trying to maximize the way a lot of the bigger uh, corporations, the bigger players do in finding the best market to sell food from their point of view is the one that makes the most money for the shareholders. Mm-hmm. So we localize. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, in an, uh John Eichert has brought up several times over this weekend um, the fact that he feels that food should be a public utility, (laughs) which I think is a really exciting concept. And I would love to hear both of your takes on that, if you think that is practical, and and kind of if, if you were about to make that happen, how would we do it? Well, I think that John often talks about cooperatives as a model, and so that's exciting. And when you look back... Um, many rural communities utilized cooperatives as a business model. What's beautiful about cooperatives is that they are owned by the people who participate in the cooperative. So it's a much more equitable system. Everybody has a stake. 
everyone is a stakeholder. And when you look at the Rochdale principles, which cooperatives are based upon, they're, they're equitable by their very foundation. So what you're doing is utilizing a system that um, not just invites, but mandates access, mandates equity, mandates that space where each person that's involved in the food system is involved at a level where their voice is not just heard, but utilized. And John takes that at least half a step farther, if not a step farther, in having government be one of those cooperative shareholders. Mm -hmm. It's a big step, (laughs) because it's not something a lot of governments want to do, but you want them to be a partner I think we're in the early stages. Uh, John and I spoke at the EcoFarm conference in January in uh, Pacific Grove, California, and he also talked about it there to a very receptive audience. That's partially why we're talking about it again here. It's gaining a little bit of traction, but it's going to be sort of a long-term play. But uh, I come from San Mateo County in California, and we're actually going to have in the next month or two Uh, a a Zoom session with John calling in from Iowa, talking to our county folks, to our county government about this. We're in the early stages, but we're curious enough. Our government is curious enough. Oh, that's exciting. It is. I love to hear that. Um, So I'd love to hear about sort of um, some of your independent projects. Megan, I'll start with you. Um, With your... um, Excuse me. Uh, with your work with the uh, Mountain Harvest Consulting, um, this started. You started as a as a farm, and you built a food bank, and now you've kind of moved into the the policy side of things. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that evolution, kind of what you learned starting on a small community focus level, and then growing outwards. Sure. Uh, so I initially came to the food bank, the Salvation Army, as a client, and what I found was there were no options for my family for fresh, healthy food. And when I brought that up to the director of the food bank, she pointed to the field in the yard where the food bank was located, four acres, and said, let's start a farm. And, uh, and we did wow. <laughs> at the Salvation Army. And uh, so um, we started from the ground up. We built the farm always knowing that it was never about us. It was never about the food bank. It was about the community. Um, and what we did was allowed for a space for not just my family, but other clients to learn and refine their practices of agriculture to grow their own food and create livelihood programs so that those families, those clients could go on to um, start their own farms, uh, begin their own farming journeys and uh, level up and out of ever visiting the food bank again. Also understanding that we were growing for a larger population, um, donating all that food, learning that skill, um, creating programs where what we saw was community participation on so many levels that was was a way for us to continue to have that food conversation well beyond any food is okay for people in poverty and really focusing on that. As I was on that journey, what I found was oftentimes the barriers weren't that we didn't have the food because now we had it, but it was in policy. Mm. And we started at the local level really looking at our planning department because people said, I can't have a farm in my backyard. They won't let us. I need to pay it 
$10,000 for a variance. Well, that's not going to work. So we rectified that. And I kind of learned policy through the local level. And then we went up to the state level and I worked on the Cottage Food Act and, and, and making sure that that access wasn't just happening in my own backyard, but was happening all over the state. Um, and was invited on to the Colorado Food Systems Advisory Council as a governor-appointed uh, position. And from there I learned it's not just about policy, but it's where does the policy live. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's local, sometimes it's state, sometimes it's federal. And, and how do we address each component of that policy? What I also learned was that the most successful way to start a community project is one that lives without you. And so um, I stepped away from the farm and other clients took over the work. Um, the most recent one, Emma, she's gone off and started her own farm in uh, Minnesota, replicating that model of donation. And, uh, and moving on to the federal level, What I've seen is, okay, it's not just the policy, but how is it implemented? How is it regulated? And I learned this big word called appropriations. Oh my gosh, that's where the money goes and how does it go there? And so for me, the journey has been realizing that as a person coming from a space of food insecurity, that I do still have autonomy. We do still have autonomy within our food system. And as a farmer, what I learned is that every skill I learned on the land that I can translate those skill sets into the world of policy. Excellent. And I know you mentioned your family, and I know you have two little ones listening at home. So I do. Hi, Snow and Jade. How you guys doing? (laughs) Excellent. And um, moving on to you, Peter, um, you mentioned a piece of policy that you're really excited about right now, which is the Homemade Foods Operation Act in your home state of California. So can tell us a little bit about that? Well, The first policy I worked on at the state level was California's cottage food law, Mm -hmm. which passed six years ago. And the cottage food laws vary from state to state, but they allow a home cook to make typically shelf-stable food. In in the words of environmental health departments, non-potentially hazardous. Mm. Uh, So that limits you to bread and jam, flavored teas, We're looking this year, and when I say we, we have to be very careful about that. This isn't the California Food Policy Council. We both have very many hats. I'm sure. The California Food Policy Council doesn't typically take positions on individual bills, but it's a place where we can convene subgroups, working groups. We've actually convened a group that's in favor of this new law and a group that's opposed to it. That's interesting. It's okay. It's very democratic. Uh, I am an advisor to the sponsors of that bill, which would be the second state in the nation, which would make it legal for a home cook to sell hot meals to their neighbors. Wyoming was the first one. Uh, They didn't do very much regulation. They just opened it wide up. Oh, wow. That doesn't quite happen in California. (laughs) We will license the cooks. There will be inspections. There will be limits. And we're going through... uh, a long two and a half years negotiation. We think it's this bill is going to pass and the governor is going to sign it this session in September and then it would take effect next year. But health departments are still nervous. What if there are more germs in a home than there are in a restaurant? We talk about those kinds of things all the time. But we know that there are tens, perhaps a hundred thousand 
cooks out there doing this unlicensed. So one argument we give back to them is, if you can license a fraction of them, you actually perhaps make them safer. They're doing this anyway. And one of our state senators in the last hearing said that very specifically to a Nervous County Health Department uh, agent. It, it seems in a way that selling meals isn't connected to the eliminating hunger. But I believe it's all part of the same thing, all part of that connecting people to food. Mm -hmm. And we do see that neighbors who are sometimes hungry are cooking for each other. So the connections are there if they're not always obvious. That's lovely. Um, and to sort of wrap up, I would love to hear, um, we, we want to share with our listeners as much as possible kind of concrete steps that can be taken by individuals to help make the world more sustainable and equitable. And in terms of hunger, I would love to hear your advice, whether it is, you know, calling your representatives or volunteering, or I would just love to hear what you think that individuals can do to help to alleviate this problem. Uh, well, there are a number of things they can do. In Slow Food California, we have an active policy group. And we try to tell our members what's going on. At a state law, something like the Homemade Food Act, there are times when it's good to call your state legislator and tell them, I'm in favor of this. Mm -hmm. Letters can be good. Emails can be good. It's a timeliness. And generally making noise is a good thing. If, if they don't hear from you, if the legislators don't hear from you, it won't change. Getting involved locally in an urban ag project or some other local food project uh, is very important. And there are many challenges, as Megan was saying, with not being able to farm in your backyard, to actually connecting with your food. Local laws uh, can pro prohibit you from doing that. So going to a city council meeting and talking about, I would like to grow more of my own food, and I can't. Mm -hmm. uh, all the way down to voting with your dollars, learning where your food comes from, and buying the best local food you can and supporting your community. Excellent. And Megan, do you think that you're going to see more um, farm slash food banks popping up around the country? You mentioned that you have a, a disciple in, in Minnesota. <laughs> it seems like it's a good model. Um, for sure, although one thing is not the solution, and so I'd yeah. like to circle back to the last question you yeah. asked and, and um, be a little radical and say, um, you know, the systems that create poverty and hunger are very much instituted and intentional. And so what we can do every day by voting with our dollars is truly to divest from those systems. Where are your dollars going? Are you participating in systems that are perpetuating the oppression that keeps poverty very much in place? Until we address that, we're putting Band-Aids on, on something that doesn't need a Band-Aid. It needs to, to change. And so really committing to that piece. And that, that means that every choice you make every day affects your world, it affects your planet, it affects the people. So think about where your money goes and how it goes there. There are other ways to invest. I love slow money. I think that makes a lot of sense and in yes, that closed loop system. <laughs> and well, I mean, yes. And, um, and so, but beyond that, 
um, looking at the value that's non-monetary in your community and investing in those spaces with your energy, your time, and your devotion. It's in agriculture and all the other spaces in our community. So that's how we move this work forward. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you again so much to Peter Reddick and Megan Lovelace for joining us today at Slow Food Nations. Um, thanks again to our sponsors, Hearst Ranch, the Julia Child Foundation, and Julie Schaefer for making this coverage possible. And we'll be back with more shortly. Stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you.